0: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy, I'm Manoj Ramani, and today I have with me my colleague Rohan Seth and we are going to be talking about India's Data Protection Regulation. It's a law that was proposed in December last year. Since then it's been with Parliament, it's currently with the Joint Parliamentary Committee which is examining the provisions of the legislation. Um, And this is really interesting because this committee has not been able to meet for months because of the pandemic. And it just did in the last week of July. Uh, It met on the 27th. From what we understand, there was a couple of hours of conversation. Not everybody who's part of the committee could attend. There were about 18 out of the 30 MPs uh, who are part of the committee who attended. And there's obviously no serious forward movement because... uh, Others could not join in virtually or they didn't want to have a conversation virtually. And at the same time as all this is happening while we're still working out the data protection regulation, um, we saw a massive hack that took place with regard to Twitter uh, sometime back, earlier this month, if I'm correct. And that hack uh, had sort of accounts of people like even Barack Obama being compromised. So that sort of raised many more questions about the urgency of India having uh, a clear comprehensive data protection framework which defines everybody's rights responsibilities and which sets processes in place so that such things don't necessarily happen or at least even when they happen, how do we go about securing the data? Um, So Rohan, uh, you've written about this and I want to sort of welcome you to the show by first asking you, can you tell us a little bit about this Twitter hack? I mean, all that I know about it is that uh, Obama's account was hacked. So it's funny that uh, you mentioned
1: that Obama's account was hacked because it, I think he has the largest following of all the people who got hacked. But pretty notable people were actually uh, hacked. So you had Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, and a bunch of others. And so what basically happened was that some people, we don't know who they are yet, but they got access to uh, some of Twitter's user tools. And they, they, used their, they used those tools to basically set up a scheme that said that, well, I am trying to give back to society. And the idea was that this is a link through which you can transfer Bitcoin to me and I will send you double the Bitcoins back. So if Jeff Bezos says something like this and says that he's only doing something like this for an hour, uh, people would actually take the bait, And that's exactly what happened. So you had a bunch of people transferring wealth to Jeff Bezos, uh, apparently, and uh, to Elon Musk, uh, hoping that they'd get double the bitcoins back. But of course, that didn't happen. And I think the first warning sign should have been that Jeff Bezos said, you're going to give back to the community. I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so that happened. And, um, and that actually um, brings me to sort of my instinctive reaction to this. Because once the hack happened, I immediately thought that this is exactly why we need a data protection bill. And I, I can think of anyone who closely follows tech policy in India to come to the same conclusion. And the the fact that the joint parliamentary committee itself is not meeting virtually is actually testament to the fact how seriously we take cybersecurity in India. Um, so there, there, as you said, not everyone uh, of the ministers are present to the, the joint parliamentary committee session, and that's because media name reported this, and it, it's basically that no virtual depositions will take place, uh, and um, all meetings will happen in person because of the danger of a third party, uh, which is. By by the way, the Zoom, the video conferencing platform. So they're actually worried that Zoom might be listening in, or let's say Google Meet might be listening into the conversation. So that, that's how seriously we take cybersecurity in this country. So, so when this hack had happened, my first instinctive reaction was that data protection is important and cybersecurity is not great.
0: This is incredible, right? You know that they didn't want to meet on any other that they didn't want to do this virtually because they had concerns about third-party intervention or loss of data or, you know, things like that. It's just incredible that's happening where at the same time, so much of, uh, you know, like in the first few months of the pandemic, we saw so much of conversation, even security-related conversation happening virtually. It's incredible that this is what's actually happening. But uh, let's sort of move to... What exactly? So, I mean, the other thing about this committee meeting that I was reading about was that, uh, you know, they were talking about two specific provisions which essentially relate to exemptions for different government agencies uh, under this legislation, which also is interesting because the argument was that if you're going to give this carte blanche for people to get exempted, then really who would not want to get exempted from any sort of processes, right?
1: Um, So, see, there's a bit of a trade-off here, and Anupam would be proud that I mentioned trade-offs. But the idea is that the state should have some agency to basically say that I do not belong in this bracket because this, has, this is being done for national security or stuff like this to so just maintain public order, which makes sense. But just the fact that the state have, has to be exempted should come with some safeguards, some oversight, because it's a power that can very readily be abused. And I, what I realized following this space for a while now is that it is generally hard to see such safeguards or oversight uh, oversight existing. And this happens in multiple regulations. The data protection law is just the latest example of it. So when the state says that I need to process this data and not be held accountable for it, to me that just makes no sense if you just – because as you said, this creates an incentive for any judiciary – by judiciary I mean any data processor. Um, I'm not going to go into technical definitions of what a processor and fiduciary judiciary is. But, because that, that will take a whole other episode, but the idea here is that any government body that is processing data will, will have an incentive to say that I don't want to bear any unforeseen consequences of this processing. So why don't I exempt myself from this? And yeah. the exemptions could have been a lot more, a lot more something, a lot more treating, but they're not. But the, the current manner in which they exist, and they're not retroactive and thus. But the current manner in which they exist is still pretty broad, and still gives a very big incentive for government to not be held accountable for its actions.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think you know it's a, it's a it's a good thing to actually just. Uh, I'll take I can take a thirty seconds to just quickly tell people a little bit about the legislation that we're talking about, and what we're going to try and do through the next bit of this uh, conversation is that we're going to try and see. We've spoken about the Twitter hack. We've spoken about the fact that this legislation is still stuck in Parliament. It was. Uh, It was submitted in December 2019. It's really, really urgent because you constantly keep hearing things like you know, data is national wealth and so on. And I know this is Rohan's pet peeve, therefore I'm choosing to mention data as national wealth here. Um, But the idea is that uh, we constantly keep hearing about the importance of data. And we also realize that, you know, from the point of view of privacy, it's fundamental, uh, given that we are today, everything is digital. uh, So we're producing so much data constantly. I think it's important to just specify a little bit about what the Lord uh, proposes to do, right? The clause sort of talks about two types of data, personal and non-personal data. It tries to govern things like uh, who can access, who's a, who's a data, who's the data creator, who can access, who processes, and what are the sort of uh, redressal mechanisms in case of violations of provisions. Under this, uh, any individual uh, who is the creator, entity or individual who is the creator of data, is known as the data principal. At the same time, like Rohan mentioned, the data fiduciary is somebody who uses the data, who processes the data, is a data fiduciary. There's a special authority that's also been created, that's also proposed, right, Rohan? There's a data uh, the data protection authority. Yeah, and that's the sort of nodal agency for any sort of redressal mechanisms, right? Yes.
1: So I just want to add a few things there. So it's not a
0: law yet, it's a bill. And it yeah. currently
1: looks at... An, there's a section that talks about non-personal data, but a whole other bill is going to be drafted for non-personal data itself. Uh, so th- there's a section, I think it's section 91, in this current personal data protection bill that says that the government should be able to access non-personal data. Uh, but that is going to be looked at much more detail by another law and another body, which is going to be the non-personal data uh, protection authority. So all of that is there. So currently, none of this is set in stone. This is, the JTC is currently hearing this and, there's so a committee within the government that has come up with a non-person data protection framework, a governance framework that is open to consultation. So if you are willing to go and comment about what the governance framework looks like right now and should be linked, the comments are still open at the time of this podcast recording. And also, uh, I think, for the next couple of weeks. So a non-person data protection regime is yet to be set up, but a personal data protection regime, they're more than
0: halfway there to the bill being finalized, uh, under, in my view. Okay, so awesome. So now we've got certain basic things clarified. So This is the current legislation that we're talking about is about the personal data protection. It's uh, the individual or the entity that is creating the data as a data principal. The processing agency is the data fiduciary. Um, there is a data protection agency, which will be your redressal agency. And uh, given that social media platforms is what we're talking about from the point of view of Twitter, They are intermediaries because uh, they will have users of a certain kind of threshold um, and they can have an impact on society in many different ways. So now since we understand what are the different characters involved in this, let's try and see, Rohan, if this Twitter hack, if this entire scenario had happened when this legislation had been passed and was in effect in its current form. What are the processes when something like this happens for an individual who's you know, whose account has been hacked or whose data has sort of leaked or whose sort of privacy has been violated. What is the process laid down under this legislation currently? So let's take things one thing at a time, right? So let's say this particular hack would classify,
1: would be classified under the bill as a personal data protection breach. And little bit about how a law such as this works is that generally there is a trigger word. So let's say there is a breach or there is harm to the data, which is the user, right? So, anytime there is a trigger that is activated, like a breach or a harm, a set of events is set in motion. A certain set of events has to happen so that this can be taken to its logical end. So, in the case of a personal data breach, the breach is a trigger, word, right? So, once a breach happens, let's say in this case, this was a Twitter hack, right? So, and Twitter here is a data fiduciary. Yeah. Uh, it's also an intermediary. I mean, you can be both things at the same time uh, because they're they're under different regulations. But here it's a data of judiciary. And the the problem here is that, well, as soon as a breach happens, there's a few things that the the critter would have to do to make sure that this is not illegal, that their conduct is not illegal. So which is they they need to send a notice to the data, they get to access data protection authority. And the notice should include four following things, which is the nature of the personal data, which is the subject matter of the breach. Uh, number of data principles who are affected by the breach, so how many users were impacted, possible consequences of the breach. This I'm not entirely sure about. I mean, you could have so many consequences of this, just one of them being that a lot of people will lose their money thinking that DevDesign should give them double the money back. Um, mm-hmm. Or just people losing access to the control of their messages. So you could maybe, let's say, DM a lot of people, a lot of things on Twitter, uh, which could be very sensitive, and that could lead to a lot of damage to your reputation. And also, the fourth, uh, finally, the action that has been t- taken by the data fiduciary to remedy the breach. Um, so the idea is that um, as soon as the breach happens, what exactly has Twitter been doing, uh, what it plans to do, and how it basically plans to manage all of this. So these four things need to be included in, in a notice to the data protection authority. So the thing that sort of interests me, and this, I wrote about this in my column. And it wouldn't be a podcast uh, if I didn't plug something that I've done before. So I, I wrote about this in my column. And what I said was that keep in mind that this was a very public database. Right? Twitter is very visible as a platform compared to HDFC Bank. City, right? A lot more people care about what happens on Twitter uh, than they do about HDFC Bank. And so the Personal Data Protection Bill in its current form does not require this notice to be visible to the public. So what could happen is that your data could be breached and you would not know about it. Yeah. So let's say if I lose access to the Twitter account, the data protection authority is supposed to be notified. And the data protection authority then makes a decision on whether I should know about this or not. Hmm. And to me, that makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what data, what, I mean, surely the data protection authority has something to do with the fact that my data, or the data of billions or the people is using breached. But at least the people who have been compromised should know about this. Yeah, and and to and that's what I addressed in my column basically. Because the way I look at this bill is that it had three main stakeholders to manage. Think of it like a triangle, right? There is the government, there are companies like Twitter and Facebook, and then there's the user. And before the bill, the power dynamic that existed was that the power was all of it was with the company. Uh, The government was the second most powerful stakeholder, and then you would have users which basically have no power at all, just subject to whatever privacy agreement that you have agreed to under Twitter when you think I have read and understood the terms and conditions. Um, So those are the three things I imagine. So what the bill is supposed to do is to manage these interests and say that, well, there is a discrepancy in how the power is being shared, and so the user should have at least some more of it. Uh, in my, in my mind, the ideal situation would be that the user would at least get some amount of control of their data back. And a breach is possibly one of the worst things that could happen to your data, right? Yeah. So if I lose access to my Twitter account, or let's say, let's take it up a notch, if I lose access to my WhatsApp account, I would like to know what messages are being sent under my name. Yeah. And the fact that the bill doesn't actually make it a priority for companies to notify me, was what, what
0: basically what was troubling me. And so I wrote this call. This is interesting, right? I mean, uh, so I can understand in the context of uh, a social media platform like Twitter or whatever. But when it is linked to something to do with your... Uh, so yeah, I mean, on on social media, you may end up hurting your reputation, which for some people may be very, very... For everybody, it may be very distressing. But for some people, it may cause financial loss. But when it starts to sort of... When you talk about banks and things like that, and if those institutions are not legally required to talk about data breaches, which can be extremely problematic, I think that really sort of throws a big spanner in the works, right? Because I would like to know if guess case uh, some of my banking data, uh, you know, my accounting, my sort of bank statements data and things like that, have leaked uh, because a lot of the times, you know, you end up getting... Uh, and this happens in India presently also, right? You know, you'll end up getting a call from somewhere saying, you know, about some sort of support, some sort of charity, something like that. And when you ask them, well, why did you, how how on earth did you get my number? Yeah. And the answer that you get is, oh, we have your number from a database of, uh, you know, of individuals making between X amount and Y amount. Yeah. And you'd be like, but how on earth do you know that? Uh, I mean, I've never, because I've gotten sometimes calls from places where I've never visited in India. We, we are contacting people who make over, 50,000 rupees or something like that. And I'm like, but how do you know how much money I make? And they're like, no, it's in our database. But well, how did it go in your database? It tells you that somewhere there is some data that's leaked. Yeah, so there
1: are two things here, basically.
0: So the first thing is that
1: consent is sort of broken. And I'm borrowing this from, I, I'm, I'm saying borrow, I'm stealing this from Rahul Mattan's book, which is Privacy 3.0, great read. Everyone should go through it if you can. Uh, and towards the end of the book, he talks about how consent is broken. I don't recall the three points completely. But so the thing was that, see, most users don't understand what they're giving consent for, right? Mm-hmm. So at the time you signed up for your bank, maybe your bank could have basically said that, well, we'll be sharing your data with these people who will not contact, who have the power to contact you. Yes? And then consent is also interconnected because companies have an incentive to basically just have a terms and conditions agreement that is as broad as possible. So, once your bank has an extremely broad consumer agreement as does, let's say, the, person, the data processor that your bank is selling your data to, those two agreements that you have now essentially signed can end up with you in a situation where you basically, you have a processor that knows how much you're earning and can reach out to you on that basis. That is troubling, especially when the price of health data or financial data, right? The second thing is that when it comes to a breach, the DPA gets to decide whether or not you know about it. But there is no standard set of rules that the DPA has to follow at least under the bill. So there is basically no boilerplate that tells you that, well, if I haven't been told about a breach, it's because of these particular reasons. That doesn't exist. I mean, the DPA has complete discussion. And it can basically use that to say, well, I don't want to tell you about this because I don't want to tell you about this. Maybe you had a national security issue that would have occurred and that's why the DPA held back whatever. But in this case, it could just say, well, it slipped through the cracks. Yeah. But that's the most absurd example I can think of. But they can just say it slipped through the cracks. And there is no incentive for the DPA to basically tell you about as many databases as possible. So instead, like, what you had here is that a breach happens, the fiduciary tells the DPA, the DPA says, okay, uh, cool, fix it, short, sure. And you are none the wiser, even though your data has been leaked or your account has been compromised. And to me, that, that is fundamentally why in this case, the law itself, the, the bill itself is inadequate. Yeah,
0: no, that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. And I, I mean, if I could just add to that saying that uh, any compromising of Rohan's account will be a national security breach. <laughs> Given that he's such an asset. But, Ron, how do we address this? So, one of the points that I sort of readily get from what you're saying is that there need to be clear standards for the DPA in terms of uh, how it sort of deals with fiduciaries and how it sort of also provides de- provides the information about breaches uh, to users, right? Yes. So,
1: there needs to be a standard set of guidelines to minimize the amount of discussion that the DPA has here. Because you need to realize that users are equally big stakeholders who don't have a lot of power and to correct that, there needs to be a set of guidelines for, for, for the user to know why a possible breach hasn't been shared for them. And it can be as broad as saying, well, national security was being compromised and so the DPA didn't want to Fine. But at least have that in place so that I have at least reason to believe that this is being done for the public. good. Right? So minimize discussion for the DPA. and. Secondly, and, and this is a more radical alternative, it is to say that well, all companies, regardless of how big or small, need to tell their users when, when a breach has occurred. So don't go to the DPA. I mean, go to the DPA, but also at the same time, tell the users that their data has been compromised. If your password has been compromised, if your financial bank account details have been compromised, if your adhaar number has been compromised, just go to the user and tell them exactly this. And <laughs> both of these situations are better than the one that we are currently living in. So there is, there is no bad choice here fundamentally. It's just that there is, let's say, a more radical choice and a less radical choice. Both of them better than what we currently have.
0: Yeah, I think what you're asking for is essentially uh, more accountability from a bureaucratic agency, which will be the DPA, yeah. and uh, more accountability from a private entity, which enjoys inordinate amount of asymmetric sort of uh, power compared to the user. Uh, you know, something like a Twitter out of Facebook, inordinate amount of asymmetric power in that dynamic uh, for, with an individual and trying to sort of through legislation, compel them to be far more accountable. The challenge, uh, and while that might be great legislation, the challenge would be, how would you implement something like this given sort of uh, judicial capacity? I mean, would you then end up going to uh, lower courts to implement uh, uh, so to challenge the non-implementation of some of these plat- some of these regulations, or uh, would you look at uh, what what were the mechanism by which a consumer can actually then seek redressal, right? Because let's assume the DPA has guidelines and it doesn't do anything Perfect. for an individual to go and challenge the DPA, as sort of an authority. I presume is not really going to happen. You know, at the same time, when you are going to do when you when anyway, for an individual to take say a big social media platform to court. The sort of asymmetry in that, although it may be great to actually have that mechanism, which I think we should, but at the end of the day, uh, sort of power dynamic that plays out, right? and also the fact that, would you have separate redressal systems in courts and all that, given that so much of this happens in real time, and you might end up fighting Twitter in court for 10 years by the time Twitter might uh, even cease to exist, given the way technology evolves. Yeah, I mean, the
1: the redressal mechanism itself is an interesting thing to look at, because... I, and I say this kind of with a very heavy heart, there are no great answers here. You could maybe, let's say, approach the DPA and then try to go for a redressal mechanism. But in that sense, the DPA would have hundreds and thousands and millions of requests. So that body is going to be overburdened. Similarly, if you go to the judiciary, is it going to be a very similar problem to have? So I, I wish I had an answer to how to make this a better process for the bureaucracy or the judiciary in the country. I, I don't know. And which is which is why I say that let's have the maximum amount of transparency as you possibly can. So there are the least amount of decisions for a for an authority to make, so they can actually focus on stuff that is important. Uh, and secondly, as as you pointed out, and this is something I just addressed before in the podcast as well, is that see the current power dynamic is that as a user I am helpless. There is not a lot I can do, and this bill was supposed to help at least address some of that, and. In the case of breaches, that's not happening. So if this passes, I don't see how I am better off. Maybe yeah. with the exceptional chance that the DPA decides that this is important for me to know about, yeah. which may or may not happen. So this is fundamentally what's been troubling me. I don't have a solution for this, unfortunately. Um, but the, I can identify the problem and help look at how we can go about it.
0: All right, brilliant, that is excellent So I think we've had a fun conversation At least we sort of clarified lots of things for me um, And I'm sure for a lot of other people also Uh, What we're going to try and do is that We're going to try and uh, link uh, Rohan's uh, op-ed And a a summary of uh, the bill by uh, PRS uh, In the show notes So for anyone of you who's interested In actually going through what the bill says uh, That will be available And also Rohan's views will be available in the show notes Uh, Thank you so much Rohan for this conversation Thank you for having me Check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.